Hey, Whiskey Ringers. I am thrilled to welcome back Impex Beverages as the Whiskey Ring Podcast presenting sponsor. Each month, we'll be talking about a new set of single casks, maybe feature a chosen distillery or single casks from a chosen distillery. Listen for the mid-roll for more info on this month's offerings. And now, a brand new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Hey, Whiskey Ringers. Welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Uh, this week, we're going over to England again. And shouldn't really say again. We've only gone over a couple of times. But this time, we're going straight to the heart of the, of the issue. We're going to London to visit Bimber Distillery. And with us, we've got Matt Mackay. Matt, welcome. Hey, David. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. And yourself? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Delighted to be uh, joining you here today. Wonderful, wonderful. So, you know, let's um, start uh, not quite at the beginning of the Bimber story, but more about, you know, what you do at Bimber. Like what's your role, both stated and not stated? <laughs> sure. So I have um, I have a pretty weird convoluted job nowadays. So part of my time is spent with Bimber Distillery and part of my time is spent with our second distillery, uh, Dunfail, which we are constructing in Scotland. And they're kind of two jobs that are related, but they are a bit different. So um, at Bimba, I'm responsible for marketing, communications, cask assessment and product development. And it's such a small distillery, as I'm sure we'll talk about, everyone kind of has to get stuck into everything. Um, up at Dunfail, our, our constructing distillery, I'm the director of whiskey creation. So my role there specifically is managing the wood policy, looking after the, the casks as they mature. And then as we get to the point down the line in the future, when we actually have whiskey that is of age, um, I'll be the one uh, presenting uh, Darius, who's the founder, uh, effectively with my creations as, as suggestions for how we shape that that spirit into into whiskey and finally onto a product that we want to present to the market um but as you say uh everybody gets involved in everything um i'm regularly doing interviews either about bimba or english whiskey or about myself um and i do take an active role um effectively as an ambassador going out on the road hosting tastings and yeah just just sort of one of those whiskey geeks who loves to get involved in every single part of the process as much as possible Love it. Love it. Um, it's one of the few areas where when you say people wear many hats, they're actually happy about it. So it's <laughs> a different change. <laughs> so, um, so just to provide some extra context. So um, I, I think I'd heard about Bimber, um, uh, not a ton, to be completely honest. I had, but then I got talking to Raj Sabarwal, who's the importer for Bimber, yep. for, Bimber for the U.S. And uh, when I talked to Raj for an episode of the podcast, he brought on Bimber as one of the brands to talk about. And we talked about a single cask for that was a you know an ex bourbon cask. Um, it was delicious. It was it was clearly different. It was unique uh, in its flavor profile. So we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but the we didn't so much go into the origin story of Bimber, and I do know you've. You know, every podcast is going to ask you what the origin story was, of course. <laughs> so um, I'll point people to, you know, a couple of episodes that I listened to to prepare for this interview. I listened to uh, Fermented Adventure, Whiskey Talk, yeah. um, you know, Irish Whiskey Review. And of course, the most recent one is the Drammers event that you did um, last month or a month before, pretty recently. Yep. Um, but, you know, with all that said, uh, why don't you give us the kind of quick rundown of, of Ember's. Sure. 
founding in history? So the, 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 the quick rundown is that whilst we are an English whiskey distillery and whilst we are in London, um, our roots, uh, not my roots, but the distillery's roots lie in Poland. <clears throat> the distillery founder Darius and uh, co-founder Evelina, who is his wife, emigrated from uh, Poland to England uh, a little over 20 years ago. Um, Darius's background is in architecture and engineering um, and construction. But before that, uh, his father and grandfather were moonshiners in Polish uh, communist times. And that's where the name Bimba comes from. In Polish, it means it means moonshine. So he already had a pretty good understanding of what distillation is, mainly in Poland using fruit, but distilling using the human senses, smell, sight, taste, no computerization, not necessarily doing things to, to, a, to a timing schedule, five minutes here, 16 minutes there, but doing things to a point where your interaction with, with that spirit, with that distillate, and your human senses would tell you that this this is right to you. Um, having moved over to to England to to do construction and architecture, um, he increasingly visited Scotland and just just fell in love with it. Fell in love with both the culture and the country, and of course the whiskey, and decided that he wanted to combine those passions. So to take take his love of Scotch whiskey, um, but also with those sort of moonshining roots with that understanding of distillation and engineering and, and to found his own distillery. And in 2015, uh, he had the opportunity to go for it. Uh, the site was available uh, in North Acton, just sort of 10 minutes west of central London. And here we are now, um, you know, quite a few years down the line and with whiskey that's going to be approaching seven years of age. So it's been it's been quite the journey, but it all started with uh, Darius's vision um, based off of you know, doing some distillation in an illicit fashion, but mm. thinking, well, look, you know, a lot of a lot of whiskey has that illicit history to it. Maybe there's something that's that that can actually be taken out of that and brought to the modern era. Um, and so I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about, you know, the flavors of Bimba, but how they're influenced by by production and how we make our whiskey. Um, and so right from the off, the story is very much linked to that tradition that moonshining sense of the human senses and how we still use those to make the whiskey that we're making today i mean it, it's a fascinating backstory and uh it it brings to mind a couple of recent examples uh, i've talked with in in the us i mean usually when someone comes from a background let's say and founds a distillery maybe it's from the wine industry or from the beer industry uh they're their family's got a hundred year old recipe, you know, with the yeast carried yeah. it between Pappy's toes kind of thing. But, um, you know, there were a couple of stories recently where people come from more of the kind of architecture and furniture side of things and woodworking. And I'm thinking specifically of Santa Fe spirits in New Mexico. Um, yeah. you know, their founder Colin was an architect and then, uh, also whiskey Del Bach in, um, Arizona, where their founder Stephen was a woodworker and a furniture maker, and he, I do want to point out his. Uh, I'm not exactly sure when this article is when this uh, episode is going to come out, rather, but he just had a an expose about him in the Wall Street Journal that was a wonderful deep dive into um, his story. So, shout out to Stephen, thank you for coming on the podcast a couple episodes ago. But uh, the the point of that was more that there are non traditional backgrounds that people are getting into the 
whiskey industry in nowadays. Um, and it's fascinating to see how they bring those into their own distilleries. So we'll get to this a little bit later, but when you say for, for the new distillery in Dunfail that you're, you know, managing wood policy and cask management and, and yeah. thinking about the future that way, casks and the type of wood being used and, and how it's being used seems to be a very big part of Bimber's strategy as well right now. Uh, and just wanted to make that connection before I completely forgot about it. Um, the other quick thing was just about, I hadn't thought of this before, but you mentioned that in Poland, so Darius and Eulina's, um is also from Poland or just Darius? Yeah, correct. Both. Yeah. Okay. So uh, with uh, their background in Poland, I guess I had kind of automatically thought that their distilling background or history family distilling things would have been um, perhaps grain especially rye um, but it didn't occur to me that it would be fruit fruit yeah no yeah. uh in europe um even to this day be that illicitly or legally there is still um a big tradition and ongoing heritage around around fruit liqueur and uh, fruit spirit distillation it's a big thing Oh yeah, the uh, we've talked. I think the first episode of this podcast actually was about, among other things, Rika and um, Slivovitz and things like that. Exactly. From, yeah. From the area. Yeah. So I don't know if this has ever been been asked, but you know, how was Darius able to kind of take the the fruit distilling knowledge, bring it over to now distilling grain because um, they're it's a, I know it's a similar process, but there are enough differences to ask the question. Yeah, there are an absolute ton of differences, least of all because anything that tain, contains convertible starch into sugar, you can make alcohol from, um, but they all behave in different ways. You know, some you're going to need to add enzymes to. You obviously can't do that with malt to make to make malt whiskey, um, but they're, they're all going to need to be processed and handled and thought about differently. So... Um, I'm sure he'd answer that question were he here with the answer of um, a lot of research, uh, a lot of time, a lot of practice, and probably a lot of failure. Um, we're all coming at Bimba to distillation and whiskey as, as whiskey geeks. Uh, we're very much greater than the sum of our parts. We all have different knowledge, different experiences of whiskey. Um, but none of us come from, you know, a sort of generational you know, 10 years of distilling and you simply inherit the distillery uh, and then just carry on what, what's going on. You know, when, when Bimba was founded, everything had to be done brand new. You know, this was the first experience of malt distillation that any of us had done. So um, you take the you take the lessons that you've learned around um, around temperature, around what flavors you want to exhibit through um, fermentation. Um, you take the lessons that you can learn around seeing how other people operate their distilleries, seeing what positives they are there and seeing what things that actually you might say, you know what, I think we're going to do that a little bit differently. But it all, it all, David, comes down to putting in the hours, um, having a practice being and being prepared to fail um, and understanding that it's all a learning process. Um, I would say we're pretty good at it now, but we're always still learning. Um, and certainly when it comes to the new distillery up in Scotland, um, we're looking to open probably around the end of Q1 next year. But we're going to have several months where we're we're using the kit, we're working the site and we're, we're understanding 
what we've installed there because no matter how you plan something it always it always ends up behaving a little bit differently you've always got to tinker and understand it so yeah ev everything about it is having enough fundamental knowledge that you're not just sort of sticking a pot under some flames and hoping for the best but equally being being prepared to to adapt being prepared and actually very eager eager to learn um and eager to push some boundaries um that being said we we do follow some pretty traditional processes that you don't see at a lot of other distilleries although they are starting to be adopted um even by our next door neighbors in scotland are starting to go back to some of what i might call the old ways um but nevertheless they'd probably answer the question in the same way it's um yeah it's, it's there's a lot of trial and error based based on the work of uh you know the shoulders of giants that came before you and uh, you know using that as a jumping off point into the kind of nuts and bolts of of bimber first and because uh, i definitely want to spend some time on dunfell as well but uh you know with bimber you're working now with you know two portuguese copper uh, from hoga to you know alembic style stills each is 100 sorry a thousand liters you know these are i think 100 percent copper stills yep 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 because um, I, I know some are uh some stills right now are using kind of a stainless steel pot if you will and then have everything else above that be copper but this is 100 percent copper um stills and I know it's built up a little bit over the years since since then you had a 500 before that and probably smaller ones as well. So with the stills that you have now, uh, let's just start there. You know, how did how did you end up with ones from from Portugal? That's kind of a a lesser known source for stills, let's say. And um, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the stills are quite interesting what i would say is that alembic style is fairly common um in moonshining um that that sort of style of of pot um is preferred in european moonshining um so in in that sense its design its shape and its behavior is a little bit more a little bit more known when you compare it to something like uh you know a, a large I'm going to say industrial still, i.e. something from Forsyth's in Scotland. Um, those behave very differently and they wouldn't, for various reasons, work with Bimba's setup. One, because of size. Um, it's very difficult to make stills as small as we need them. Um, we need them small because of the space, but also because we are distilling using direct fire. Um, and that is one thing that it really marks us out as different. There's quite a few differences in our production processes, some which are coming back in um, in terms of uh, long fermentation. But direct fire is one that only a handful of distilleries are, are really either still operating or bringing back. And the still is, in my opinion, perfect for what we're looking for. Um, it has one disadvantage that I'll come to in a minute, but it's perfect in terms of what we're looking for from direct fire is almost the opposite from what you're looking for from um, a large, I don't know, 18,000 Forsyth still. When you're using uh, those stills and you're heating with steam, you're looking for pretty even temperature throughout your, your boiling chamber. That's the objective. What we are looking for from our still, 
and using direct fire is an uneven temperature. What we are doing is we are using the direct fire and the still to create uh, heat spots where within that chamber, some parts of that uh, boiling liquid are hotter than others. And what that is doing is it's burning in uh, unspent yeast and heavier compounds into that spirit. Um, the example I always give uh, to sort of explain what it is and why it is to people is thinking of this as like a water bath, a sous vide steak. You can leave a steak in a bag, vacuum sealed bag for two hours and it comes out and it's beautifully soft and juicy, but it's gray and anemic. There's something missing. And what's missing is the char on it, which provides a little bit of texture. But also that char has flavor and sweetness. Um, and that and that process of charring a steak is called, is called the Maillard, the Maillard reaction. And that's what we're doing in Bimba Still. We are burning in these compounds into that spirit and they are adding both sweetness, but particularly texture and weight and mouthfeel into that whiskey. What we have done with those stills is they've been heavily customized. Um, they've had the surface areas increased by dimpling. And we've also refitted uh, the shell and tube condensers there. I wouldn't quite call them a worm tub inside, um, but they're not far off. We've stripped out all of the copper pipe, uh, all the piping and replaced it with copper, copper coils. So effectively what we have throughout our process, we have this long open top fermentation, which is a little bit dirty. Um, it creates so many wonderful estuary flavors, but it's a bit dirty. We then have this direct fire distillation, which is burning heavy compounds into the spirit. Again, a bit of a dirty process. But all of these, all of these things as part of our plant are creating flavor and texture. And then what we're doing with the stills that we have is we are trying to purify it as much as possible. So these adaptions that we've made to uh, the body of the still, uh, the fairly steep initial angle of the lie arm, and then the customizations we've made to the shell and tube condensers all maximize reflux. So we end up uh, with a spirit that is packed full of flavor and profile and, and particularly mouthfeel, um, but it is heavily purified. Um, if we didn't do that, yeah, you'd have this amazingly impactful, big, big fruity whiskey, but it, it just wouldn't have the level of purity we're looking for. And that's really what we're looking for from Bimba. We're looking for something that's super fruity, um, super sort of oily and mouth filling, but it is still something that you would say, wow, this, this is quite classy and it, and it feels nice in the mouth. And it's, it's the combination of all these processes that really sort of in terms of the, the production side of things culminates in, in these special stills with this direct fire that, that, that make all that possible. And I would assume that the angle of the line arm, is going to be upwards, uh, steep upwards leading back into the main body of the still yeah so i mean it's it's almost a bit parabolic it's uh it's vertical initially um so we're really making the spirit fight to get up but then once mm -hmm. it reaches reaches the top of that verticality it's got this sort of almost ski slope sort of wee all the, all, all the way down into the condenser so you know you're sort of you're really pushing the spirit to get up there but once it does then it's got a nice gentle path back down and then it hits the coils in those shell and tubes Gotcha. The, that brings to mind, um, I think it was Driftless Glenn, it was a recent uh, recent guest on the podcast as well. They kind of, <laughs> they had a Vendome still built for them. And mm -hmm. in the process of doing so, uh, some miscommunication happened about the height of their ceiling. Um, 
in relation to the height of the uh, still and the line arm. So they're still go. It, it's a leads up into towards the ceiling, but then instead of going straight up because they don't have any room, they got Venom to install a right angle where yeah. it goes up, hits the, that point and just goes straight across. And in doing so, you get as you're, some of the same things you're describing, this very um, heavy, fruity notes uh, and character to the whiskey without making it um, dirty or still very clean, very fresh. Um, and it, it reminded me of that as soon as you said it, because it's still, as you said, the the whiskey and the spirits are, I should say the spirits, not the whiskey. The spirits are really fighting to get up. Once they get up, they've got plenty of copper contact up there too with the vapors to take as long as they need to go uh, through the through the process. But in doing so, it's really letting the cleanest flavors come through the, you know, the right compounds that you want to get out there. Exactly that. Exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'll see you'll see so many stills when when you visit distilleries where either you can just tell that the the angle of the arm has had to be influenced because of the height of the ceiling. Uh, mm. More often than not, that stills have been replaced. Um, but then people don't think about, oh my god, we've got to take the whole roof off. Um, you'll see distilleries where they're still building the distillery, but the still is already in, and you're like, wow, that's really crazy. There's barely a structure there. But you have to think about it. You've got to get this thing in there. You'll see stills, um, Glengyle, Kilkerran, where you know another still has been purchased, it doesn't fit, and then so they'll chop down the neck and and then plasma weld it back on. So it's a combination of yeah, what you want to achieve from a spirit um, in terms of those, those natural angles and their influences, physically what you can fit in your space um, to the point where, you know, Bimba could put in much bigger stills, uh, but people forget that if you want to expand capacity, you have to expand it downstream with your plant as well. So, you know, a, a, a still that's twice the size means twice as many fermenters. It means twice as much mash. So everything is a product of what you want to get uh, the environment that you're in, but then also a bit of happenstance. You know, a lot, a lot of these distilleries make amazing spirit, and they and they've done things which at the time you're thinking, well, that's weird, but they just they they just work. Um, and things change. You know, certainly distillery setups have absolutely changed over the years. Some for the better, some for the worse. Um, some personal preferences. Um, fair. Bimba, Bimba will be looking, once we've finished our project in Scotland, we will be looking to relocate the distillery. Um, probably still in the same part of London, certainly in London. Uh, all our bottles are branded as single malt London whiskey, so we're not going anywhere. Um, but we do need a bigger space. Uh, we need a bigger space to increase production. Uh, we're in the fortunate position that everything we make sells out pretty damn quickly. Um, so we need to make a little bit more, not too much because... Our processes are, are very slow and long-winded, but a bit more. More space for cast storage and um, more space for a visitor experience. Hmm. We've already got one of those stills. Um, we were going to go ahead and do this, and then a funny thing called COVID happened, and it kind of put all these plans to plans to hold, and now we've got busy in Scotland. We've already got a new still, um, and it's remarkably different. It's not a Hoga still. Um, we've uh, designed it ourselves, but... You know, a lot of people come to a distillery and say, oh, you've changed this or you've got this new piece of kit. Is that going to change the flavor of your whiskey? And it always frustrates me when I, I visit someone else's site and someone says, no, it won't. 
because the answer is it will you know any change to yeah. to inputs or the processes that you make is going is, is going to change the whiskey so yeah we've got this new still that at some point we'll be going into a new bimba um or you know Bim, bimba two as it were relocated um and we're completely fine with that effectively we see it as a journey we are not a, a distillery that is big enough where you know we want to produce a million bottles a year that all taste exactly the same consistency is important to us but it's consistency along a journey so we've got to the point where everything you're trying now is getting a little bit older and it's from that still setup that we have that we've just spoken about um that's going to change and we're completely okay with that um because the more we do it the more we understand it so any change we make we we think we'll just keep making it better and better as as, as you go downstream and of course you know that um that means the uh auction and then unfortunately secondary for the quote-unquote number one yeah a whole whole, whole different conversation that one yeah um yeah so so going back though there you know that's that's one limiting factor that you've got just the location that you've got in london right now um and i would imagine even the the uh the new location as long as you're within the london area uh and in you know these these heavy duty manufacturing zones and such I would think yeah. there's on, there's still going to be a limiting factor as to just how big you can go at to Absolutely. to pair with how you want how big you want to go as well um which which brings me to another limiting factor I wanted to to then ask about which was you know right now you're you're getting these all your your malt I think you recently switched over fully to laureate you were originally using concerto as well yeah um but all from you know Fordham and Allen farm yeah so unless you're bringing in more uh, more farms or or expanding that farm or having them expand the farm, I guess, in Hampshire, you're still going to be limited by just how much they can produce for you as well. It is December, which means you're looking for the perfect whiskey to give the people you love this season, including yourself. The bourbon hunt is coming to an end, and some special releases are still to come, but I'm here to offer a different, uniquely sustainable option from our presenting sponsor, Impex Beverages. Our Demurkin Distillery is one of Scotland's newest producers, located in the Highlands and founded less than a decade ago in 2014. From the start, sustainability has been at the core of their operations. Local, renewable energy fuels the distillery, and the nearby river generates hydroelectric power. Biomass boilers use wood chips from local forestry, and stillage feeds livestock across the peninsula. Their first single malt whiskies came out in 2020 and were immediate successes. The distillery's two signature styles, a peated and unpeated Highland, are matured in two sets of casks. 65% of the liquid goes into ex-bourbon, and 35% into ex-sherry casks, blended at the end for an impressive spirit, redolent with fruitiness, waxy character, and true West Coast Scottish charm. As an aside for you blockchain lovers out there, each bottle's journey can be tracked via a QR code on the bottle from field to glass. I've now got two Ardnamurkins on my shelf, their core single malt available at most stores nationwide, and a single cast bottling from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, another sponsor of the Whiskering Podcast. For that holiday gift, consider a single cask release from the Impex Collection. A six-year-old first fill Oloroso Spanish oak cask, this bottle comes from some of Ardnamurkins' earliest stocks. Only 300 bottles are available from cask number 86p 
bottled at a hefty 58.2% ABV. Check out the website or reach out if you want help grabbing a bottle. Happy holidays, everyone. Enjoy your whiskey responsibly and remember the two rules of the Whiskey Ring podcast. Drink what you like and drink it how you like it. Hey, Whiskey Ringers. I hope you've been taking advantage of that podcast-only code for the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. They've got around 20 bottlings coming out each month, and there's never a shortage of new things to explore. For the holiday season, December, January, we've got even more bottles than usual available to try and available to buy. If you are a U.S.-based listener, there are at least 12 casks just for this month's release, plus additional ones coming out. If you are a U.K. listener or an EU listener, there are over 30, a ridiculous number of bottles that you can try and get your hands on. Remember to use code WRP at checkout to get 25% off your annual membership. And when you get that special bottle, post a picture on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and tag us at Whiskey My Wedding Ring, Whiskey Ring Podcast, and hashtag Whiskey Ring to let us know you've got that great bottle in hand. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's a fair observation, but I'm going to turn it the other way around and say that the expansion that we're probably going to start looking at uh, next year, um, relocation, we've got in our, our minds that we want to effectively double capacity. So to put it in context, our current capacity is 50,000 litres of pure alcohol a year. That equates to, uh, in understandable terms, a barrel a day. That's where we're up to. We would like to double that to 100,000. Now, that doesn't sound a lot when, you know, you, you talk about large distilleries and they're filling 300 barrels a day. We're talking about moving from one barrel to two barrels a day. But in the grand scheme of Bimba, um, that, that would be massive. That's a game changer for us. But I don't think, and nor do we want it to be bigger than that. Um, the processes that we're offering, uh, seven-day, 168-hour fermentation, um, <laughs> the distillation with fire, but it's virtually all day to do a distillation run. It's not quick. And we're not prepared to compromise on those processes. So in that sense, you know, making whiskey the, the bimba way, it only scales a little bit. You know, if you want to really scale that up, you're going to end up with even more inefficiencies that we have. We have inefficiencies that we have to work with to make whiskey this way. Um, and so in that sense, when you're looking at the farm, um, yeah, they can they can provide us with twice as much. So that's that's not actually going to be a limiting factor here. Sure, if we were saying, hey, we're going to be 10 times as big, absolutely, that farm wouldn't do. But we're not going to be, and we don't want to be, and it doesn't feel, A, that, you know, we're not going to make any compromises on the quality of our distillate and our whiskey, um, and B, that type of expansion, it just wouldn't be us. You know, there are plenty of whiskey distilleries of a massive scale. They do amazing jobs at what they do, and we're very happy to to let them do it. Um, we feel we've got a particular area of the market where we're amazing at what we do. Um, and all we want to do is do a little bit more of it and make it fundamentally make it easier for us to work in, in the space that we've got. Um, it's pretty tricky to try to do all the different things that we do, which other than growing the barley is every other part of the process, uh, all the way through to packaging and dispatching. Everything is done under one roof. And um, it's bloody difficult. Um, and so really what we'd like to do is just is just to make our lives a bit easier and to get more bimber into the hands of uh, people who want to drink it, particularly markets such as your own in the US, where we've sent out uh, 
a few a few bottlings, a few casts to Raj, um, and they've been very well received. So yeah, we'd like to be in a position to be doing more of that. Yeah, the the ones that I've gotten to try have been absolutely fantastic. Um, and Thank it's you. good to hear that the current farm can supply the uh, the doubled capacity. Yeah. yeah. So I want to take a slight tangent there for a few minutes uh, before going back into the kind of on-site processes. Uh, in 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 listening to other interviews and, and reading interviews and trying to do research for the episode, um, you know, of course, the, the idea of this single farm came up uh, multiple times, but uh, I don't think I saw the question asked. You know, was the idea to start from a single farm to begin with? And I I asked that because I know that commodity grain was not the goal, but there's also kind of a balance between the single farm one farmer one if you want to use the term terroir from that farm yeah. versus a couple of very small farmers but still multiple ones so how did the choice to use just one farm come about sure so it's a combination of i'm not going to go into terroir there are other distilleries who uh that's totally that's their fine. focus yeah uh I'm, to I'm 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 talking down with it and i'll happily talk about it in other in other circumstances but for bimba it's, it's not our it's not our focus um, but it's a combination between the profile and extractability of that grain and the relationship that we have with uh, with Fordham and Allen, the farmer. Um, in terms of the profile and what they're doing there, um, we, we we just love the the grain that they grow. It's it's just perfect for our needs. Um, and and every every distiller needs to have complete trust in the supplier of their ingredients. Whether you want to go down the terroir discussion or not, the quality and the consistency of those ingredients is absolutely tantamount to, to making a good quality product. So that's one thing. But the the more, not limiting factor, but, but an equally as important thing for us is that Bimba being an urban distillery has no grain storage. We don't have silos alongside a distillery. Um, you know, when you go up to, um, I'm, I'm sure in America as well, uh, when you're outside of the urban zones, you have distilleries with uh, large amounts of land so they can take large amounts of grain, stick them in silos and hoppers. And, you know, so long as the rats and, and the moisture don't get in, they're, they're good for a pretty long amount of time. We don't have any of that. So that means that we need grain deliveries every single week. And so we need a relationship with a farmer who's happy to do that. Because uh, that's some ask, you know, I mean, Basingstoke into London, it's not five minutes away, you know, it's an hour or hour or so or, or more on a, a bad traffic as you get into London. So it, it's a combination between uh, having the exact type of grain that we want, uh, that we're happy with in terms of its profile, its extractability, its ability to produce a clear wort, which is what we're looking for. We don't mill the grain, we just crack it open. Um, another another difference in processing that we do to most distilleries but fundamentally it's about that relationship uh, with the guys at Fordham and Allen that they're going to be delivering every single week and so we've got that a that frequency but b that consistency so so for us it was yeah it was always just we that's the type of relationship that we were looking for and we're very fortunate that that's the type of relationship and supply that we've got and it's a perfect segue into the the next question was was that idea that you're just cracking the grain rather than than milling it. Um, in in thinking about it, I I think it's pretty easy to understand anyway. But I was also thinking about it in terms of like a peppercorn, you mm -hmm. know, like a peppercorn crusted steak or something, where you're 
if you sprinkle ground pepper on the steak, you're just going to get just a hell of a lot of guayacol and black pepper um, just burning your mouth. But if it's peppercorn crusted where it's really that thick, um, very coarse crust on it instead, you get that, but it's very flavorful. You get the fruitiness from the pepper, the and everything that goes with it and the texture as well. So I guess the question there is, is twofold, of course, you know, how did that decision come about, but also, um, you know, is there anyone else doing that? Hmm. Um, I'm loving the analogy, David, cause it's another steak analogy. Um, so I'm probably going to, I'm probably going to steal that one. So you might hear me on other podcasts in the future. Uh, when people talk about why we're doing this, giving your example, I'll I'll try and trademark it to you because it's it's perfect. You're spot on. It's the difference between, you know, you, you can get peppery flavor from any pepper. Um, it's a dip, but for yeah, for me, uh, it's the right amount, right? So what we're looking for from the grain is the right amount of extractability. We are not concerned with yield. Well, that's a little bit too firm. We're not, yield is not our important concern. It's, it's a concern for every distillery, but we put flavor and profile above yield, right? So in that sense, we crack the grain because it provides us with exactly what we need. We do not need to mill it down to fines to get what we need to make that, that you know, the, the wash, the, the, the first tranche of alcohol that we're going to reinforce. In doing it that way, because we don't extract the fines, we end up with what's called a clear wall. Um, that doesn't mean that it's see-through. It very much isn't. It's um, a big murky liquid, but its profile is fruity and cereal right from the start, rather than it having that sort of that that the character you get from flour from fines. So, again, that 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 decision is it, it's one that just came by about by playing around with it, you know, testing. What flavors do we get? Um, we're going to have to do this all up in Scotland in the next few months. Where where do we want it to be? Um, rather than working with an assumption that you'll go to, you go to a lot of distilleries and one of the first things they do when they show you their mill, which we don't use, is they'll show you the shaker box. And those percentages of husks to all the way down to fines, they're pretty, pretty even. You know, you might find a few percentage here or there between distilleries, but everyone sort of does it that way. Um, and yeah, we just decided rather than going, okay, well, how are we going to change our percentage to think of it completely differently, to think of it of, well, what flavor do we want to get from this grain? And so that's what got us to the place of actually, you know what, we don't need to mill this at all. Um, we can get just as much extraction to get our wash up to, you know, eight, eight and a bit percent ABV, which is exactly where you want before you're charging a still without putting in all this extra material. And to be honest, um, it's why we don't apply a third water when it comes to, to mashing. Uh, we only use a strike and, and one single sparge, because again, we're not looking at washing through all those fines at a higher temperature. And yeah, we get exactly what we want. We're not worried about the, the extra liters that we're gonna get because we'd rather have that pure profile um, to go into the fermenters. Then, then, then to worry about a few extra liters, which is actually going to provide both dilution and, and a different flavor profile. In terms of your follow-up question of, do I know of anyone else doing it? My answer is I don't. Um, that doesn't mean that they aren't, uh, but I don't know of anyone doing it. I mean, I'll, I'll admit that I think the uh, inference there was also, you know, do you know anyone in, in England or Scotland doing it? But it goes beyond that. I don't, I haven't heard of anyone in the US doing it or... I'm yeah, Canada, I'm so. pretty. I, I think I can say fairly confidently 
I'll say I'll say with high confidence no one in England is currently doing it. And I'll say with fair confidence see that no one in Scotland is doing it. Uh the rest of the world is such a big place in terms of distilling. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't like to make any uh, assertions that I can't back up. I haven't heard of anyone anywhere in the world doing it. Um yeah, it's it's that balancing act. I mean, you know, whichever way you do it, you're you're going to end up with um, you know something that you can convert in fermentation. Um, but certainly, when you start to look at scale, then efficiency and yield is is tant tantamount. It's absolutely super important when you're dealing with millions and millions of liters. When you're looking at a small urban distillery with an output of fifty thousand LPA, um for us it's it's actually it's worth it's worth the notional loss of liquid to focus on the profile of the spirit um but yeah if you're at scale and that loss of liquid over per annum is you know 200,000 liters or something you might you might think differently about it um but for us it, it it's a no brainer we want to make the best liquid possible and that and that loss of you know, some additional fermentability is, is fractional to us, absolutely fractional. And with the, uh, with using the cracked grain in particular, you know, you mentioned you get a very clear wart or um, not crystal clear, like you might get in, in Japan, but um, clearer than this porridge like mix that you might get elsewhere. Uh, again, uh, you know, I always, ask, I keep asking the same question, it seems, but the, uh, the why did that happen? But the, and and you've answered that one for for the wart, but uh, to go along with that, the from a very technical standpoint, I'm thinking about you know do you then not agitate um, in the fermenters? Um, do you kind of just allow things to ferment as they as they will with the with the double fermentation you guys do the initial yeast and then the uh, malolactic fermentation? Yeah, we just leave it. Um... The washbacks are they're pretty narrow and tall. If you you know if you were to sort of look at look at them in profile, uh, they are quite tall. Um, that initial vigorous fermentation on the yeast provides um, a enough circulation of that liquid uh, for what we're looking for. Um, we are filling them vertically, um, so you're gonna that's that's what's oxygenating um before you pitch the yeast so that your your wash your eventual wash has enough oxygen um for that yeast to really to really thrive um but equally what we really want to do is simply leave it um we just want to leave that there and we want the pitch yeast to do its thing which invariably it will um but then we want yeah we want the wild airborne yeast to then be able to to tune in to the bacteria that we leave in in the American oak in in those wooden washbacks, and so really it just kind of does itself. Obviously, that makes it sound simplistic, like we just sort of built a thing and threw it in there, and here you go. And that's not the case. We originally started with steel uh, steel washbacks, whilst uh, for the first year of Bimba for like a 100, 110 casks, there were there was steel. And because we have this engineering construction architecture firm up the road, uh, they're providing all, all effectively our coopers. Um, so they built those vessels um, designed by Darius. Um, he's the maestro when it comes to plant and building things. And um, and then there would have been a process again of, right, okay, um, how much yeast? 
how long you know how, how are we doing these things with, with those fermenters but fundamentally it is actually as simple as um yeah tip tip it in um pitch your yeast and wait the one thing that we control uh, that we don't allow to just do its thing to be wild is temperature so each of those seven fermenters and i, I think they've become sort of a, a slightly iconic scene of bimba you know those you won't see those fermenters anywhere in the world uh, we do get breweries occasionally asking us could we build them some um but they're they're, they're quite labor intensive and they're and they're not cheap to make um and the idea being is that that really we want to allow as much wild ferment as possible but within some type of confines and those confines for us are temperature so we have heated chiller units just above the seven washbacks one for each day of the week and they either heat or chill those washbacks to keep them within roughly an eight degree variance, which is simply where the yeast likes to operate. Um, everything else about it is, yeah, it's pretty dirty. Um, it gets like a Karcher jet wash, but we don't use any cleaning in place. And we just believe in letting, letting nature take its course. You know, we apply some yeast, uh, we let the yeast go through its, you know, go through its curve mm -hmm. and then we just leave it. We just leave it. And so that wash, um, when it starts to hit sort of day six or day seven, it's amazingly fruity, but it is starting to, it's starting to sour, you know, it's becoming that fruity. Um, and the reason being is simply that we, we fundamentally believe that distillation is reinforcing the flavors created during fermentation. And so it's the one stage, it's my favorite stage of whiskey, whiskey production, as it were, before it gets to the barrel, um, because you're creating so much potential um, for experimentation and flavor there. And, people just don't realize it they're just like yeah you know you just need to get it to eight percent and then off you go no it's 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 what you've got inside of that wash it's not just the volume of alcohol it's the flavor you've created and so yeah this sort of this wild yeast feels a bit crazy but actually it's it's about as natural as they come in in its second second phase that malolactic wild yeast uh, exhibited um fermentation it, it's just simply taking a liquid and leaving it the we'll get to the the wild yeast in a second too um the there's been i've noticed kind of a, a very strong division in what you just talked about in terms of like the distiller's beer or the wash that comes out where um some distilleries are very concerned with or the let me flip that some many distilleries are not that concerned with the flavor and the taste of that fermented uh yeah the mash because they figure it's you know whatever flavors the yeast has created it's going to be distilled and then you know they can control it through there um there are a couple that really do focus on that distiller's beer and and make it to a point where it's it's palatable you know it's something that you would almost want to drink like uh i give the example of westward where they make a distiller's beer that if you threw some hops in there you'd have a wonderful pacific northwest ipa Absolutely. you know it's it's that good and I got to try it and, and the, their new make, oddly enough, is tastes like bread from Outback Steakhouse. Just there's nothing, there's no, <laughs> there's, it's all clear. That's exactly what it tastes like. But um, anyway, so jumping back though, with the, with the wild yeast. So you've got the first phase, first three to four days, which is the, um, the pitched yeast, the dis distiller yeah. and um Brewers Stillers yeast. and baker's yeast, uh, uh, brewer's yeah. yeast. It's a, a, com a combination of, of, of the two, 
um, effectively uh, an in-house combo um, that we just think does does the job properly. And yeah, so we're pitching that for um, pretty much four days, um, which I would say is roughly roughly the industry standard amount of fermentation. Um, although a lot of new distilleries are starting to move where we've moved into to longer ferments, certainly in English whiskey. White Peak, they're also running a fantastic distillery that I would definitely recommend uh, up and coming in England. They're, 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 they're running seven seven day fermentation as well. Um, and they're using, um, I believe, spent leftover yeast from uh, a local uh, brewery that makes a beer called Jaipur, um, a sort of moderately strength, relatively famous beer over here so they're using that but again are running that are running that long ferment um so it is it is an increasing trend but it's the one where it's the one where you're really starting to get some inefficiency into the process right that if you can turn these around in four days you're going to get a lot more throughput than leaving it in there for seven days um but it's the part of the process where as you said david you know there's this divide between people who just want to get to the abv and off they distill and distilleries like Bimba, where we fundamentally believe that uh, whatever you're distilling is is completely based off off of the wash that you have created, it is it's it's crucial to us. And yeah, we find anyone who takes a different view will will raise an eyebrow to it um, because we're literally not doing that because we've tried to do it and we and we think the results speak speak for themselves. And so during that fermentation phase, you got about a seven day from exactly seven day fermentation of its 168 hours. So by day four, like I said the first wave of yeast is pretty much dead. It, it's spent itself out. Um, there's enough alcohol in there that it's no longer really functional. And that's when the malolactic fermentation comes in and that second wave of the wild yeast. Yep. So, um, you know, the, just to separate them out, the malolactic fermentation that's coming from the uh, bacteria present in the wood in the washbacks. Um, it's a fascinating process that you, as you said, you don't get with stainless steel. You only get that with wood or a porous. Um, yeah, yeah, some something in, that in, something that can hold the bacteria in. So yeah, um, yeah, if you get something like that in stainless steel, um, your steel's been pitted and it's probably not gonna. Um, you're not gonna get that effect. You're probably just gonna get a, a washback that's spoiled. Um, you need the wood. Mm -hmm. Uh, for the bacteria to live in a harmonized environment effectively where it becomes a natural part of the thing rather than uh, something that you might treat as a taint. Exactly. Uh, with that wild yeast, I'm curious if uh, if you and Bimber have done uh, any kind of studies on what kind of yeast you're coming up with. And I ask that just because obviously London being being London, it's a massive you know, international city, um, that even if you're not in the heart of the city, if you're in North Acton, uh, you're still going to get just this massive uh, variation in what's in the air. Um, so I'm curious if you've kind of studied what kind of yeast you're getting, if it's the same one or ones each time. And um, because it, that does ultimately go towards the flavor profile you're going to get. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that would be a bit before my time so that's something i would have to go back and look through the annals to see what what work initially was done on that um i'd be very surprised if we didn't do a, a, a little bit of analysis on it i haven't got that information to hand to say what what type of yeast it is equally or completely correct david um that mm -hmm. you know that that's based on your environment it's based on the the conditions the building where you are the temperature humidity etc 
And we're going to be doing the same thing in Scotland, uh, long open top ferment, but it's going to be different there because of that environment. Um, yeah, that's one I just have to get back to in terms of really looking at the details of, of you know, those early studies into it. Um, that's a pretty technical question that, that I don't get asked a lot. Yeah, what what type of wild geese? Jesus. Um, yeah, I'll get back to you on that one. I am a big nerd when it comes to I mean, anything whiskey. I guess. Yeah, so that's even too nerdy for me. I'm pretty nerdy, and that one's that one's beyond my nerd level. Yeah. Hey, what can I say? Um, I gotta ask questions that people don't ask. Otherwise, it's no fun, you know. So yeah, yeah, you got you got you got to test us. It's what you're here for. Okay. So all right, so we got the fermentation. Moving on to the next stage, the distillation. We talked about the the stills that you've got, the line arms, the the setups and such. Um, so we kind of do understand the the bimber as it stands now. Process from getting the grain all the way to to certainly to casking, if not to bottling. Um, so I want to just pause there for a second and ask. You, know, you guys at Bimber, and it sounds like you're going to do the same thing at Dunfail, um, have a very wide range of casks that you use. And I feel like we, I keep using, throwing now. in these like varies and these superlatives, but it's really true. Like you guys have a lot of variation. So um, we, yeah. we, we, we do now, David, but originally when we started, um, it was actually quite narrow. Um, we started off primarily, uh, and it's still the mainstay of our fields of ex bourbon um two types of sherry oloroso px virgin and port and that was it when bimba started those those originally that that was our entire slate of cask fills but what's happened is particularly over the last sort of 18 months um particularly sorry it's my doorbell uh particularly over the last 18 months we have um been trying to experiment and see what the flexibility of our spirit is so whilst we know that it, it works super well with those original cast types and we had the early releases that we did, variations, variations on those themes, we've really been trying to, to see where the limits of our whiskey lie. Um, and touch wood, we haven't found them yet. So we've spent that, that sort of last 18 months really experimenting with lots of different, um, I mean, not necessarily wood types, but precursor liquids. So... How does it work with, and we've worked our way through pretty much the range of sherry from uh, floor sherries, um, fino, um, amontillado, all the way up to the oxidative sherries, so moscatel and px and everything in between. Um, I'm responsible for um, all the beer cask projects. So yeah, we're just pushing it out there. Uh, one, to see for ourselves what really works. And two, because we like keeping surprising people. Um, we like coming up with things where people are like, wow, what's what's this and and how does it work? Um, there's bound to be a cast type that doesn't work. Um, in my head, it's gonna be some type of wine because I'm always nervous about wine casks because of their their level of tannins and particularly their acidity, but we haven't got there yet. So yeah, it's, it's, it's there are quite a few different cast types now, but the mainstay of what we're doing remains, it remains ex-bourbon, it's the cask where um, despite those casts being now a little harder to get than they used to be and certainly more expensive. It's it's the cast type where if someone said, what's Bimba, I'd say try this and it would be it would be expert. It's, it's the cast that lends itself to our profile. Um, done fail. Um, yeah, my intention is somewhat similar. 
Um, so I'm going to be looking at a sort of core range of wood that I'm going to source initially. And then as we get down the line, expand it outwards. I, I think that's a sensible way of going to find out where where your core profiles and flavors initially fit. Get some, you know, get some casts that you just completely trust that you're happy with before you start putting it into weird and wacky things. But equally, what I'm going to be looking up in Scotland is a lot more hogsheads and refill wood. Um, and that is simply my preference um, as a whiskey drinker and a whiskey person. Um, when I'm not working for Bimber or Dunfail, you know, I look at the, what type of whiskeys that, that I like and, and, the, and the things that I favor. And yeah, I'm just a big fan of refill wood and hogsheads um, for, for, you know, the reason that they are a little bit, a little bit slower. Um, they can allow the spirit to really shine over and above the wood. Um, those will be the sort of things that you're not going to see in initial releases from Dunfail. Um, you know, you're going to need to get a little bit more flavor in it a bit quicker. Um, but certainly what I want to do is, is to get some of those casts laid down early doors um, because it's, yeah, it's just simply a representation of, of who I am and what I like. Uh, and I just think that uh, so many whiskeys, whilst they can be fantastic, young and punchy, in a first fill cask, you know, thinking about where they are at 12, 15, 18 years, um, sometimes those casks can be pretty extractive. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I just love um, in terms of profiles where you've got a really strong spirit, but actually the wood has had a, a longer mellowing influence. So, yeah, similar idea at both distilleries, but yeah, perhaps a little bit more of a matte spin at Dunfail as as that's kind of what I'll be doing there. Um, but yeah, you can expect the sort of the core, you know, known cast ex-bourbon, PX Oloroso. Um, we, we've got great sources of those casks from either Kelvin Cooperage or uh, Bodegas in Spain. Um, we don't use seasoned casks. We only use uh, pretty much Excelera casks or, or casks that have been used to make uh, those fortified wine products rather than on spec for the industry. Um as a start and then yeah what watch this space both with bimber and dumbfail as as that develops for yeah some funkiness just lots of things at bimber that we have sitting around that we haven't spoken about or we're testing and may or may not happen and yeah it's it's part of the fun right absolutely absolutely and uh there are two things there i want to follow up on the first one being uh the use of solera sherry cast as opposed to seasoned ones Yep. And um, this is a part of a conversation I started with Monique Houston, uh, in, who's based in Chicago, um, but she's really kind of an authority on, on sherry casks. And there are so many bodegas nowadays that are just throwing the sherry in the cask just for the purposes of seasoning the casks um, wow. for use by, by the whiskey industry, yep. as opposed to those ones that are actually made for drinking that are then you know passed around to people like us. And I, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that first category, but the second one, absolutely not the Solera system, where it's where it's really purposefully made to be drinking. I th again, I think of a food analogy of, you know, you want to cook with a wine that you would drink, because you're going to get the flavor of that wine in the dish. So, for me, while yeah, you could use a cooking wine or something that you wouldn't necessarily drink, it's just going to be better by using something that you would enjoy on your own because you also know the profile more, you get a better flavor from it, a stronger flavor. So um, I did want to, to, to mention that. So I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, the, 
other one was that the idea of creating the profile. And so, you know, Bimber being founded in 2015, first production 2016, you've had time now to, to create a profile of your own, you know, to have that yeah. kind of very classic single malt, English, not Scottish, of course, but single malt whiskey in an ex-bourbon cask, very classic uh, at different ABVs and, and provide that profile that then you can go to the sherries, the hell, let's throw them out there, the rum, tequila, you know, um, virgin casks, whatever it may be, yeah. and say, okay, here's our original. Here's what it, here's that core flavor and character and profile. Here's what it could be in those other casks. Um, and uh, that was really my first introduction to, to Bimber was with Raj doing, I think it was three casks that were unique to the US. It was the, uh, yeah, the X-Bourbon. Three casks, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the Virgin Oak and uh, Sherry was the third one? It was Sherry, yeah, it was a Sherry. Well, yeah, sure. we did, um, it was one of the early, we called it the country collection, um, where we, we just wanted to get those casts out into um, into different countries where we had this sort of, slight sort of bubbling interest in bimba um and so yeah working with raj and uh, glass revolution um we yeah we gave uh, the us market effectively one of the three main each of the three main casts we were doing in early days um and yeah let people sort of try it in yeah three different shapes so au natural as i'm going to describe it the ex bourbon which i think is our sort of calling card the virgin cask where you know you're, you're taking the fundamental flavors that you're getting from expert but you're really sort of you're really dialing them up particularly on the spice and then that sherry which is is a completely different tangent but what what we're really very keen to do and what we're mindful of is making sure that no matter where you you come in to bimba whether that's you know a tasting with us or at a distillery where you try for new make or through one of our ex-bourbon marriages or through a single cask we really, really want to have a recognizable Bimba profile. You know, we want, particularly when someone's got a, they're doing a, a tasting and a flight, we want them to see that journey and understand, yeah, I, I can, I can taste the spirit here. Um, so we're really, we, we, we're really quite determined about that. And it's one of the reasons why we don't use seasoned casks. Um, we, we are looking for um, casks that have been used to make the proper product because of authenticity, but we're also looking for the flavor that they impart. And we want something that's well-rounded and melds with our spirit and with our whiskey when we're finishing. We're not just looking to try to get as much fortified wine flavor into something because you'll find that sometimes you get amazing whiskeys. They're absolutely delicious. But then you say, well, where's it from? And it could be from anywhere. It could be absolutely anywhere. And that's not to say that whiskey isn't tasty and that people don't enjoy it, but, but the cask has smothered the spirit. And um, we really try particularly when we're using, you know, full-term maturations, we really try to make sure that, that our spirit is is front and center because we've put all that time and that effort into making it. Um, otherwise, you could just get that, you know, that whiskey that was made really quickly, that spirit is made really quickly. We don't care about the flavors of ferment. We just want to purify it and then stick it in a big fat cask and bury it. It's just so the opposite of everything I've told you. So, yeah, our wood policy very much follows our, our spirit policy um it has to to, to create that that uh that that bimber effect to have something where the spirit and the cast merge but you never lose sight of all the effort and all the the flavor that we've put into you know the physical production up to the distillate stage 
Beautiful. Beautiful. I think it's a, a perfect way to, to close out around the, the Bimber specific uh, kind of things that you're doing just to, to add in, of course, um, when this episode comes out, there will be links to not only uh, Bimber and, and the projects being done there, but also reviews of and tasting notes from the different casts that you've been doing, the couple that I got to try with Raj, um, a couple more from from the Drammer set. And uh, I mean, I'll be honest, I, I've been saying this more and more, and I'm hoping this is not hurting my credibility, but I've been getting um, very, very good samples and very good bottles from from people. And it, I haven't put out a bad review recently because it's just getting good good casks. So with that, with so there'll be more about uh, Bimber putting in this history, of the company as well. So, um, you know, noting that we're at the top of the hour, I wanted to make sure we had time to talk about um, two other topics, one being Dunfell, uh, whatever yep. we haven't covered so far with them, but also uh, before we get there, taking the 30,000 foot view of um, English whiskey. Sure. So uh, if, I mean, at this point, if you listen to this podcast, unless this is your very first episode, um, You've heard talk of what happened with with prohibition, both globally and in the U.S., in terms of its effect on any number of countries' whiskey industries, including Scotland and and Ireland and the and um, England. And really, at, at the end of the day, it seems as though Scotland was kind of the last man standing. That's they how they gained so much market share with the blends and such, and places like the U.S. and England and Ireland just had to consolidate and catch up. So I'm curious to, to learn a, bit, a little bit more about, you know, what, what was the English distilling scene like? Um, and, and what has it kind of gone through and, and where is it now? Sure. So a lot of this history is kind of lost. Um, and so to find any, you really need to look at um, an author called Alfred Barnard. Uh, who wrote a seminal tome where he went to distilleries around uh, pretty much the whole of uh, United Kingdom um, and wrote about it. You know, you're going right back into uh, the 19th century. Um, a lot of people 10 years ago would have said English whiskey. Ha 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 ha. What is this? Whiskey's not made in England. Um, and there's two things to say to that. Number one, there used to be um, back in the uh, the 20th century. Um, the last English distillery, Lee Valley, uh, which was over Stratford in East London, closed. Um, and I think it's a combination of, you know, various historical effects, um, differences in uh, the market in terms of much of the whiskey uh, produced in the UK at that point was uh, virtually all of it, in fact, blended. Um and in some ways independently bottled. You know, we think of whiskey as being single malt. We think of whiskey as coming from the distilleries, but actually that is not whiskey story at all. Whiskey story was um, that the distilleries provided it to um, purveyors um, who blended it and then sold it through their shops and through their bars. And yeah, English whiskey just never really, never really got a foothold on that. And so the last distillery closed in 1905, uh, Lee Valley. And then nothing happened for, um, I guess, nearly 100 years. And then uh, the first sort of renaissance English distillery. Um, they've been going now over 15 years, St. George's um, over in uh, Norfolk. They were the pioneer, the first of the new English distilleries. Um, but they've swiftly been followed by quite a number more. 
Um, I was at the first physical uh, English whiskey festival last Saturday representing Bimba. And it was amazing. It was a statement of intent from a rapidly growing industry that, you know, you've gone from 20 years ago, uh, the start of one distillery, uh, the first of nearest St. George's. Um, you've had the likes of the Lakes, Cotswolds, um, Bimba um, following up. But now, if you look at it, there's within a few years time, you're going to have whiskey at around 30, 30 different English distilleries. Um, and, and you can do this story and, and somewhat transpose it onto Irish whiskey. You know, Irish whiskey has has had a situation where you've effectively had three distilleries for years. And then all of a sudden you're going to end up with 40 different ones. Mm. And it's all part and parcel of, of, of the global whiskey boom, that there's just so many more people um, who are passionate about spirits and about whiskey, um, which has now led to a situation where there are gaps in the market where this is possible. But equally, there are mindsets where more often than not, when you now say English whiskey to someone, even if they don't know whiskey, their immediate reaction is not to either laugh or make a joke that if it's not Scottish, American or Irish, it can't be whiskey. That used to be, you know. Um, so eight, eight years ago, if you said to me, oh, there's going to be, you know, over 30 English distilleries and they're going to have this festival together, I would have said, I just can't see that happening. Um, that's so, so far away. Um, but it's happened really, really quickly. Um, we've now got the English Whiskey Guild, um, which is effectively the trade body for the industry by the industry. Um, Bimba, myself, um, I represent Bimba on 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 that board, um, and we're looking to put in a, a indeed we have put in a, a geographic indicator to define English whiskey, so that uh, we can avoid uh, bad actors coming in mainly coming into England and saying here's this English single malt when actually it's just grain from, I don't know, somewhere around the world. Um, the sort of the English whiskey brand is growing, um, not just as a, it's better than Scotch. Uh, I, I I don't believe it is. It's, it's obviously related to it, um, but simply as a valid alternative. Um, and that's kind of my dream. My dream is that when you go on a, a retailer's website, rather than, you know, you click whiskey and it says Scottish, Irish, American, Japanese and then it says world and my dream is is at some point in my lifetime England is not in world it's it is it's top line it is English whiskey and it sits alongside its peers um I believe it is being made of a quality to do so already and I find that pretty staggering um I believe the innovation is as um forward thinking um as any whiskey uh producing nation in the world and it's just a matter of time and awareness for for potentially my dream to happen, that it is just considered as, you know, an equal alternative. You know, someone turns up to a party with a bottle of scotch, someone else with a bottle of English whiskey, and everyone just enjoys it. You know, they enjoy both things because they're both quality products. Um, but it really is remarkable how this has all happened, um, you know, since I've been around the whiskey world um, it's so incredibly quickly. Of course, the danger is, is that, um, you know, times are now economically different. Um, we've just gone through a period where life, I guess, to a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people seemed pretty easy um, and growth was just there. And we seem to be entering a world situation where where that's not always the case. Um, and I suspect that, uh, you know, some of these distilleries um, are just not going to survive. Um, I think that's just the nature of any any sort of boom in business that, that you get players coming into the market and either 
because uh, they weren't geared up for it or didn't have the right product or what or just bad luck uh, they don't, don't all survive um but nevertheless i do think that english whiskey has now already established itself as a category um it's not going to disappear like it did in 1905 to you know another 100 years you know Eng english whiskey is here um and yeah this this event i went to on saturday wow like 350 people all interested in english whiskey what 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 a statement for the future of uh of this new category of distilling amazing it is it really is and it's it's exciting i mean the only other english distillery that i could think of off the top of my head that i've had let's put it this way that i've had that i remember um was um spirit of yorkshire yep they were, you know and i've had just had their recent they recently came to the U.S. and more than just Canada, they were uh, Canada, more than just California. Um, so there are Filey Bays going across the country. Of course, Bimber is entering kind of through the other direction through New York. So it's easier for me to get I'm yeah. based in New York. Uh, so. But it's also there, there's a big point there to be made as well, that it's not just. Uh, you know, St. George is in in. Um, in Norfolk, there there's. And you're in London. It's not just East Anglia. It's the Lake District. It's Yorkshire. It's oh, it's, it's throughout it's every Edinburgh. region. Every region. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's, it's there's a nice map. If you look up this English whiskey map on on Google, you'll you'll find it. And yeah, you can really appreciate that it's you know Scotland. I mean, distillings throughout. Um, but then you look at the map and you're like, wow, there's a lot of lot of distilleries along this one river in this region called Speyside. Um, yep. And in England, no, there's no real concentration of they're all here, they're all there. They are very, very dispersed throughout the entire country, um, which I think is fantastic. You know, it just means that if someone visits a part of the country, that they've got a whiskey distillery that's never that far away from them. Um, I think that's amazing. It is. And uh, this is the last question on this um, section was was that you mentioned you've you now have the English Whiskey Guild, uh, of which you're of which you're a part. And uh, you're trying to put in these industry-defined standards for what English whiskey will be, and you've submitted the geographic indicator. Um, in a, this was from an interview two, two and a half years ago, so things might have changed. But at that point, uh, you were talking about how the UK, and I think I wrote UK, I meant England. Horrible of me. England uh, didn't have its okay. own standards. It was mainly focusing or following you know, SWA regulations um somewhat F following eu regulations many of which were fairly comparable to swa yeah i mean th I, i'm thinking things like you know it had to be three years old it had to be um so so broadly following if not to the exact letter but broadly the idea of of what sure. um the swa is putting out sure. and the eu is putting out so i can't help but think about the comparison to uh, the uh, American Single Malt Commission, American Single Malt Standards of Identity. So um, I don't know if you follow the this side of the pond on that, but uh, they submitted their proposed regulations in 2016. And only in uh, July or August was it finally put up for public comment period of this year, so six years. Uh, but the idea was wow. to create this American geogra geographic indicator for American single malts. Um, many of the things were the same, you know, 100% malted barley distilled in America, you know, all that um, could be newer used cooperage, 
up to 700 liters. So certain things kept the same. Uh, uh, and a few things different just to allow for kind of the American spin on it, if you will. And I'm thinking about this. And again, I couldn't help think of the comparison that you guys are putting in this geographic indicator to say English whiskey is not just part of the broader UK whiskey. It's not, you know, you can't just switch out the term and put it scotch, but made in England. It's really its own thing. Um, and so with the, let's say two and a half years since that initial interview took place, you know, and now you've got the guild, what kind of separators do you want to see? Or does the guild want to see that really put English whiskey sure. in its own, in its own light? Sure. So I'm not going to overstep the mark here, David, because the we have submitted the document. Um, it has been through numerous changes involving a lot of stakeholders, and it will be coming out for public consultation imminently, <clears throat> um, which is great. Uh, not six years, um, <laughs> but a little a little while, always longer than you imagine, but not six years. <clears throat> However, that does mean that it would be improper of me to run through sort of blow by blow all the differences what i would say is um there are areas of that gi where um things are obviously specified as having to take place in england um you know if you're going to make something that's being described as made in england or english then those constituents need to have come and taken place in england i don't think that'll surprise anybody um there are some elements that you're going to see that yeah, you know, they're, they're sort of no change from the way that you would have imagined English whiskey has been uh, currently operating in terms of what we discussed around, uh, you know, EU, EU standards, and and then also, um, you know, the sort of leading uh, the way from the SWA in terms of how they make whiskey. So there's going to be things in there where you're like, well, that's, that's the same. Um, there are some differences. Uh, I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to elucidate on them at the minute. Um, you'll have to wait for the consultation to come out. But there are some differences where we are providing um, room for uh, distillers who, if they do want to do certain different things, that they've got. Uh, you know, they've got a little bit of a runway where they can uh, play around and they can manipulate those variables um, for yeah, yeah, the sake of experimentation and innovation. So. Um, you know, it's partly around providing that 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 set standard. It's partly around preventing bad actors from passing off products that aren't made um, in a way that uh, would would mark them out as quality. Um, but at the same time, yeah, we do want to we we want it to help English whiskey grow. You know, we want to use it as a basis for um, for discussion um, and for people to. Uh, to use to innovate. Fair enough. And uh, you know, should note as well, there is another parallel, the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission before the, really before and during the regulations becoming under the public comment period, uh, they were very good about speaking with one voice um, to a T and to a fault, I would say. It, I mean, it was a single voice, even though there were 140 something distilleries involved and it was incredibly impressive. And it seems like you know, the, the English guild is doing the same kind of idea of just one voice. It's easier. It's simpler. It's also more effective. So uh, we will come back to you when those go public and hopefully when they go through to um, maybe bring you on for a couple of minutes, just to talk about, you know, when you can talk about it more, of course. No, uh, we'll I'm happy, happy, to, 
yeah no happy to come back and do a little pickup on um on yeah what what's actually sort of public and you know at that point you're going to have yeah difference of opinions of it should be this it should be that and we can talk around the the whole fawny issue that is simply setting standards um because it is mm -hmm. it is not an easy process um and it's not an easy process to do it where you know you get everybody everybody on the same page and everybody agreeing with everything um because if it was then all these things would have been done years ago and it'd be easy right and there's always at least one distillery that doesn't fit in there that's like well you guys are going to screw me if he goes through so it's it's um, it's honestly very difficult david um but yeah let's uh let's pick that one up when the when the consultation's out there and we can look at the work through the document together and you can ask me my thoughts and maybe get a few other english distilleries on on the podcast and you know uh, they, yeah. they can pick it up from their perspectives. Um, I mean, certainly Bimba is, as we've alluded to, it's a very traditional distillery. Um, our innovation is in some ways backwards. You know, it's looking to the past in, in what we're doing rather than, um, you know, trying to do lots of sort of modern futurist funky things. Um, mm -hmm. So in that sense, you know, you could, other than it being in England and not in Scotland, you could take what we do up to Scotland and, uh, you know, we, we we pretty much comply with everything up there already um but one size doesn't fit all and i know a lot of distilleries want to do want to do different things for different reasons um and want to look to the future rather than to the past or yeah want to innovate through um different setups and different processes and even different grains um and it's trying to make as much room as possible um to allow that to happen um but equally to safeguard you know uh baseline quality standards throughout perfect Perfect. And I'm going to contradict myself just because, just for time considerations, um, to punt on the Dunfell uh, for just for now. Um, sure. Circle back in in a few months when uh, it's you know set up and you've got a little more on there. Just because there are a couple of questions I want to ask you um, offline in the time allotted. But in the meantime, you know. Matt, thank you so much for spending the time uh, to go through what Bimber does and and how it got to where it does and and the history of it. Um, hopefully, we asked a couple of new questions here. I will look for that email about the uh, the wild yeast types because again, nerds, you know, nerds got a nerd. So, uh, but in the meantime, uh, there will be links to Bimber's website, social media, uh, the reviews, where you can find it um, if you can find it. Because as as Matt said these bottles go quickly when they come out so keep an eye out um in the meantime it's been a blast matt mckay thank you for uh, coming into the whiskey ring uh hang on with me for a sec after we end the recording and no thank been... you so much david it's uh it's been absolutely my pleasure um some great great probing questions uh really fun to spend some time with you uh really enjoyable and yeah i hope I hope your listeners have, uh, if they haven't heard of Bimba, then, uh, you know, our discussion has piqued some interest, if not into Bimba, then into some of the processes that we've spoken about, which, uh, yeah, they're, they're all pretty, pretty nerdy stuff, um, which certainly appeals to me. And I, I'm looking forward to digging out that yeast stuff for you and then putting it top of mind in case, in case someone else tries to, uh, to ask me a really tricky one. Fair enough. Oh, and I'll also be throwing in um, a link to Matt's blog that he writes for uh that is created and writes for uh the tramble which i was looking at quite a bit yesterday and today looking through um articles so they'll be linked to that as well but in the meantime matt thank you, thank you so much it's been another episode Cheers. of the screen podcast i'll see you guys next week